Welcome everybody back this afternoon. I appreciate you leading that song, Mike. The Bible says how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity equals peace. And friends, when we're talking about resolving family conflicts, what we're really talking about is restoring peace. The family unit was designed to be a relationship that had peace within it. And I love the words to that song, a common love, a common gift. Uh, He goes on to talk about many things that we have common, but at the end of that, I think love is the center of the message of that song. Uh, I appreciate the prayer on my behalf and on my family, Jeremy. Uh, That means a lot to me. And um, we appreciate the day here today. Uh, I've been very edified. I don't know many of you very well, but uh, we've been greatly strengthened by being here. And so I want to say thank you for having me here to talk about this. And as I looked at resolving family conflict, I was telling Mike at lunch, I started looking at the points that we were going to go through, and I thought, this could be a six-part series at least, just on the subject of resolving family conflicts. So, no, we're not going to get into every single small, minute detail of resolving family conflict, uh, but we are going to, I think, uh, scratch the surface, not only that, but look into some real solutions as to how we resolve family conflict. Uh I told you this morning that the subject was somewhat close to home. Well, I'll tell you right now, if anything, this one's a lot closer. Uh, Because growing up, we lived in and out of different houses. And one of the houses that I lived in had nothing but conflict. Uh, There was no unity between the two people that were married. And uh, my stepfather did not have a godly background, did not have an interest in following God, My mother was not living right at the time, and it was a house filled with dysfunction. It was a house filled with hopelessness and a house filled with uncertainty. How do you fix something like that? It's a challenge. And friends, I think that there's many homes that are exactly like that. It wasn't just my home. It was millions of homes all over the United United States and also the world that are in total turmoil all the time. The Bible says in Psalms 127 and 1, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. If you want to just go all the way down to ground zero and look at what's causing the problems within families today, it's very simple. People will not follow God's design. I want to begin this afternoon where we ended, and we're going to do things the old-fashioned way today. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it, uh, or your smart device, whatever you use that way, and read along with us. Uh, I'm going to read out of the New King James, which is uh, not always what I read out of, so if I accidentally look up and Start speaking in King James language. Well, just excuse me, and we'll get back to it in a moment. Uh, But if you would, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 
And we won't read the entire passage that we ended with, but I want to read verses 26 and 27 again. He says, Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. My dad's here today, and uh, I'm a fourth generation carpenter. I got out of the business. Uh, I wasn't as good at it as those guys, but uh, learned a lot about building. And one one thing about houses is depending on where you're building a house, you have to be very careful with how you do the foundation work. Uh, Up there, there would be times, literally, where we would have an electric chisel digging through the soil. It was just that hard. Um, But at times when it would get saturated and wet, it would crack and shift. Well, when you lay a foundation, you want to lay it deep. And make sure that you have a really good footing around the structure. Down where I live now, we live where there's sugar sand. It's sandy loam. Uh, learned that the first day we moved in when I drove a U-Haul across the lot and buried it to the axle. That was fun. Learned a lot about East Texas, very different from the Panhandle. And these people around here, they do their foundation very differently. And I was impressed when I went into my home uh, for the first time because I started to examine the sheetrock. None of the joints were cracked anywhere, which is unheard of in the Panhandle. I mean... Those foundations shift, they move, but still the structure stays. I think that if you went out today and you started building a house and you could build it quick enough, it wouldn't matter how you built the foundation. At first, the house would look strong. It would look just like every other house on the surface, but it won't last. And friends, that's how marriages are. They get out of what people often refer to as the honeymoon phase. And that new and that excitement wears off. And all of a sudden, life's not as adventurous anymore. It's not as exciting. Maybe the feelings of infatuation that brought us together in the beginning are not burning as hot as they once were. And we realize, oh my goodness, we are very different people. And we have very different ideas and very different plans in life. And we start to drift apart and just ignore it. And who suffers? Everyone within the family unit. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you'll turn over there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. While you're turning over there, I want you to think with me for a moment about King David. You know, King David is a man who is said to be after God's own heart. And you read the Psalms that David wrote. There's some very eloquent things that he writes. David was a man who apparently was very open with God. When he spoke to God, he spoke directly from his heart. And some of the things that he says are are very emotional. They're very gripping. David had a lot of trials in life. And David was a good man. And David followed the Lord. But you know, his house was pretty messed up. You look at his family. David had several wives. And being king, he had all these responsibilities. And while the men were off the war, David looked down and he saw a woman that wasn't his, that didn't uh, belong to his family unit. She belonged to someone else. 
But he desired her and he took her for his own. And he laid with her. And as a result of that, to cover up a pregnancy that came about, he had her husband murdered. And when Nathan the prophet comes and he tries to get David to realize what he's done, David really has no idea. He doesn't see. And that's how sin is. It blinds us sometimes. But he began to speak to him about this man who took of something of a man who was really poor and loved this particular lamb. And he said, well, that man ought to die. And he said, well, that's you. You're the guy that ought to die, David. You're the one that's done all of this. And then he says, you're right, I've sinned against God. And he says, well, look, God's forgiven you of that. But he says, there's going to things that are going to, that are going to come about and happen as a result of your poor choices. As a result of your sin. And he begins to describe the turmoil that's going to happen within his household. And boy, was it turmoil. David's oldest son, Amnon, desired his half-sister in an ungodly way and eventually raped her. And she went back and told her full brother, who was also Amnon's brother Absalom about it. Absalom plotted, conspired, and killed David's oldest son, Amnon. Then Absalom flees, comes back, steals the hearts of Israel, takes David's kingdom. How do you have a guy that is after God's own heart who had a family in such ruins? Friends, I'm not sure I really know the answer to that. But I will tell you this. Somewhere along the line, David wasn't watching to see what was going on within his household, with his family. And that's what happens. We can't go through life in our families not recognizing the signs and symptoms that are there. We can't ignore problems. We can't push them under the rug and hope they'll go away. We made promises to one another. That's what's so greatly unique about marriage as far as the uh, different relationships that we talked about today. Marriage is vastly different. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4 says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do you remember what you promised when you stood there and you gazed into your spouse's eyes and a preacher stood up here and had you say a bunch of words? I'm going to be honest. That day, uh, I don't remember a word you told me to say, Dad. (laughs) I was so nervous and caught up in the moment. I was saying all these things and... I sort of remember some of them. Do you remember those things that you said? Those weren't meaningless words. Marriage is a covenant based on promises, based on vows. And God's Word says it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. What often happens is We get in the midst of marriage and the storms come, the rains descend, life gets hard. You know what people do? They start looking for solutions. You know what the solution is that's most commonly used today? Quit. Just quit. 
I mean, we didn't start out right. It hasn't gone well. We're at a point where it just seems like there's no way to, to fix this. Let's just quit. And friends, that's not an option. We made vows. We made vows. Did you vow to love your wife? Did you vow to love her when her makeup was just right and when she looked real pretty? <laughs> I didn't make that vow. I didn't vow to love her as long as she respected me. I vowed to love her unconditionally as Christ loved the church. My wife didn't make a vow to respect and honor and submit to me if I loved her. You know what? There's times when she submits to me and gives me the respect that I'm due that I'm not really giving her the love that I ought to. And I'll tell you, I don't deserve her. But she made a vow. And she takes that vow seriously. And friends, our marriage has to be built upon the vows that we took, but not just on the vows that we took or made, but they have to be rooted in biblical principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and as you're turning over there, we have been studying 1 Corinthians a great deal. Uh, some men and I have, and we just came from a conference where we looked at this book. And 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 13 rather seems like an anomaly to a lot of people. They, they look at the book of 1 Corinthians, and they look at chapter 13 and go, it doesn't really fit. I mean, why have this chapter about love in the midst of this book of admonition about false doctrine and immorality and, and going to court and whether you should support a, a guy that preaches or, or eating meat to eye. Why in the middle of that or toward the end of that is there just this strange chapter about love? Well, it's not strange at all. Because every single problem that had been identified there describes dysfunction. They had a dis dysfunctional family at Corinth, if you will. And even though uh, we look at those two bodies, the family body and the, the body that was at Corinth, that is the church at Corinth, uh, they're different in their structure, but if you look at their problems, they're rooted in the same things. And the solution is the same thing. I want to read this from 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Paul says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Why write to Corinth and describe love? You know, this isn't just some uh, unpurposed description of love. It's definitely a characterization of true love, isn't it? We know that. We, we read this for a lot of different reasons. We read it at weddings. We, we talk in pre-marriage counseling to people about love. It's a great chapter to describe love, but friends, in its context, it has a specific purpose. You know what it is? It's to make them realize that there's a solution to all the dysfunction that's going on within the body at Corinth. And what's the solution? It's love. 
And we're going to talk about some specifics of how to deal with family conflict and have that resolved. But really, all those things, they sort of shower down from the cloud of love, if you will. They're all rooted in love. One of the things that they had going on at Corinth that we see emulated in families is told in the very first chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Evidently, someone from the church had written a letter to Paul and described what was going on at Corinth. And so, he says in verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those that are of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, I say this, that each one of you says, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul begins here in verse 10 by outlining several different things that he wishes, he pleads with Corinth to implement. That you speak the same things. That you be perfectly joined together. That is, united. That there's no divisions among you. That's conflict. That's exactly the description of conflict is, we're not on the same page, we're arguing, we don't have the, the, the same mind or the same judgment. We're divided. There's division in the midst. And so I think it's appropriate that this division he dealt with there and the solution to that can also be the solution for the division that is within our families. Amos chapter 3 verse 3 says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? Very simple verse, isn't it? But it says a whole lot. How can you have one spouse who values God and following God's will and one spouse who has no interest in God No interest in His Word. No interest in His will. How can they walk together? It's very rare. (laughs) And they won't walk together without problems. He said, I beseech you that you speak the same things. In other words, that you're agreed. You know, a real basic step to fixing family uh, conflict is both people involved have to make an agreement that no matter what happens and no matter what's said, we're going to follow God's Word. That has to be the commitment that's made. Because if you don't come to that agreement, you may solve a conflict for a small amount of time, but it's going to come back. Or conflict similar to it will come back. But if we can agree that no matter what, we're going to follow God's will, we're going to be blessed. And our family's going to be blessed. Corinth's problem was they were following men. That's what he said. Some of you were saying, I follow Paul or Cephas or Apollos, or as they should have been saying, I'm of Christ. Now, they weren't really following Paul and Apollos, and he mentions that in chapter 4. He says, I just transferred these things to me and Apollos in a figurative way so you could learn in us not to think of men above what's written. You know what happens? People follow men. People follow God. 
they try to come together in a union, they go different ways. The division that started at Corinth was because they were following different ideas. They weren't agreed. They had a different plan, a different purpose, different routes. You can't walk together unless you're agreed on the purpose. One thing that we have to do is embrace God's design. You have to embrace your role within the family. You know, what we talked this morning about how there are different ideas, different relationships that man's come up with and said these things are good. They're not good. And we talked about the fact that the wife being the head of the husband is also not God's design. But you know what else is not God's design? The children being the head of the household. And you say, well, whose house is like that? Mine was for a little while. And it wasn't like my kids came in and told me what to do. I'll tell you exactly what happened. My son is an athlete, and he's got athletic ability I would never have in my life and never did. And he took an interest in sports several years ago. And you know what he wanted to play? Everything. He wanted to play football. He wanted to play basketball. He wanted to play baseball. And we're trying to meet these families and uh, build relationships with all these other families that have kids our kids' age. And so we're running all over the place, going to football games, Pretty soon I'm the head of the little league and it's dictating a lot of my time and all of a sudden I realize my kids are dictating what I do. I'm living for my children. Was that fair to my wife? She didn't think so. Especially when I was off on a gospel meeting and people were calling and going, hey, the little league needs this, this, and this done and... He's out of pocket. Well, can you make these decisions? Pretty soon, you know who was the head of the Little League? My wife was, and she didn't sign up for it. You know what happened? That was my fault. I made a mistake, and I allowed my children to pull where our marriage was going. Friends, you can't do that. You cannot do that. Your marriage can't be all about your kids. If that is the foundation that your marriage is built upon, your marriage will fail. It has to be built upon the foundation of God's Word. Let's go to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Now maybe this will seem bizarre that we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel in a study on marriage. This was a very unique time in the world. I don't know that any other time in the history of mankind that this type of situation had occurred. It wasn't that long after the flood. Uh, and all the people in the world lived in the same place. And they all spoke one language. They, they, you can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine a world like that where everybody spoke the same thing and all lived in the same area. But there was something else going on there as well. Genesis chapter 11, verse 6. The Lord said, Indeed, the people are one. They all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose or propose to do will be withheld from them. This was God's commentary on these people. He said, look at the people. He said, they're united. How are they united? They were all working together for a common goal 
And they were evidently communicating about it. And God's commentary on what they were doing was, boy, if they're going to do that, there's nothing that will be withheld from them. They'll do whatever they put their mind to. Why? Because they're totally united in word and in deed. Now verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Why did God do that? Verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the building. This is crazy to me. There's one moment everybody in the world is together and they're all working toward building this giant tower all the way up into heaven and God says, they're going to do it. They can do it because they're together. And He did two things to stop them from doing that. The first thing He did was stop their communication. Then the second thing He did was separate them. You know where a lot of problems in marriage comes from? Just because we don't talk to each other. We don't communicate. They ceased building the building because they couldn't communicate. You know, when we do communicate, sometimes it's very petty. (laughs) Well, how was work today? Oh, it's fine. Okay, let's go watch TV. (laughs) We have to have real communication. The moment that we stop talking to one another about the real issues in life is the moment the building is going to stop being built. James chapter 3 and verse 13. James 3 and verse 13. I'd love to write points up here on the board, but I didn't figure Michael would want me to mark his sheet up. I think it's been taken. (laughs) James chapter 3. Verse 13. We'll read down through verse 17. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, hypocrisy. These people that were fighting that would not accept their role, they were envying one another. Love does not seek her own. Love does not envy. Verse 18, he mentions the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those that make peace. If we want peace within our family, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to seek peace. 
and be peaceable. Notice that he mentions several things here that go along with what was written in 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 17, he says, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and of good fruits. What if that was a description of how we talk to one another in our marriages? I'm not always peaceable. In fact, my wife said she's going to get me a clear coffee cup that has some kind of heat line so that she knows when she ought to try to talk to me in the morning. And that's not right, is it? Just because I'm a little grumpy that she can't talk to me in the morning? She's a morning person. She's excited. She's ready to communicate. And I'm just... In a little bit. Sometimes if I'm not feeling very energetic, and I come in and she says, can you do something for me? I may just groan. Is that a good way to sow peace in a marriage? I was staying with some folks a while back, and uh, his wife had cooked supper. And uh, real good, beef tips and rice, and we're sitting around the dinner table. And uh, he looks over, he goes, you know, this rice is kind of crunchy. And you could just tell by the look on her face. <laughs> what did we read earlier? Love doesn't behave itself rudely. That was rude. I'm no better. <laughs> Rude communication, it it doesn't bring about peace. That's not sowing peace. That's not the fruit of peace. It's not gentleness. Another thing we have to do to have peace in our marriages is we can't get upset about every little thing. We read earlier that love suffers long, didn't we? It bears all things. It endures all things. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And we'll start reading in verse 12. Paul writing here says, Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved. Now listen closely. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love. Now listen, which is the bond of perfection. What is a bond? We sing a song called, Bind Us Together. Bind Us Together. What does that mean to be bound? You know, we use this epoxy stuff when we do work sometimes. And uh, if I have a piece of furniture that I build and it, and it breaks off, well, wood glue doesn't usually do the trick, so I use that two-part epoxy. But if you get it stuck on there just wrong, too bad. <laughs> it's stuck. And it's not coming back apart. You're just, you have to go buy some 
you know, something to dissolve it, some kind of solvent to get it off because it is stuck. It's bound. The bond of perfection. What's he talking? What's the context here? Relationships. Now, he's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ, isn't he? That, that doesn't apply within our marriages. A home that had all of these things that existed within it would be a home of peace. Bowels of mercy, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. The idea of forbearing is the same thing as suffers long. It's the same idea as I don't get offended every time you say something. We have to be understanding with each other. Which means sometimes that even though my wife tells me something that I don't like, I don't have to groan. I don't have to retaliate verbally. I can forbear that. And then I can forget about that. You know, when you ever sit across the table with somebody and you start talking with a married couple about all their problems... At the beginning, it starts really small. But as reminiscing starts to happen, that list gets longer and longer and longer and longer because there's a whole history of no forbearance and no forgiveness. We think sometimes these little issues don't matter. They, every one of them matters because there's a catalog back there. Somebody's keeping record of every time you mess up. Notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. Paul says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. These are descriptions of the fruit of anger. Evil speaking, clamor, malice, wrath, bitterness. Communication. Let's talk about unhealthy communication for a moment. He mentions evil speaking here. You know, an unhealthy way to communicate is every time your spouse upsets you, you say something mean to hurt their feelings. And you know why that's really, really bad? Because you know them in an intimate level that no one else does, and you know exactly which buttons to push. You know why we do that? Because we're selfish. That's why we do that. We retaliate. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. You know, there's just some food that I eat that's good with salt, and without salt, it's nasty. You know one of those foods? Green beans. <laughs> I just, if you take green beans out of a can and they don't have salt in them, they're nasty. But you put salt, maybe a little brown sugar and bacon in there, they're great. <laughs> Words are the same way. 
Sometimes you can say something and it may not necessarily be inherently wrong, but because you don't say it with grace and you don't season it so that it'll taste good when the receipt when it gets to the receiver, man, it's it's bitter. And it's not well received. And that's bad communication. He mentions clamor here as well. Proverbs 15 and 1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Sorry, Dad, I'm going to use you today, and I know you're here, but I'm going to do it anyway. When he was about 10 years old, Dad had a lariat, and he was going around, and he was roping everything. And apparently he was pretty good at it. And he looked up in a tree, and he saw this wasp nest up there. And he thought, what if I can... Rope that wasp nest. And did. And succeeded. And got stung on his forehead, what, ten times? <laughs> you know what he did? He stirred up those wasps. Oh, he did exactly what he planned to do, but what he did was he made a, he made a big mess. And I read these words here, grievous words stir up anger. If you're going to pursue peace, no matter how upset you may be, grievous words will never dissolve a problem. What they do is they stir up the problem, and then everybody gets hurt. It doesn't make the situation better, it makes it worse. And I'll just be honest, it is very difficult for me when someone has upset me, when they've wronged me, to feel like speaking softly. That's hard. But if God's word tells me the soft answer turneth away wrath, that means God knows that I'm capable of doing it. That I have the temperance to look at a person who has really upset me and maybe agitated me very violently within my inner man, but I don't have to have an outpouring toward that person. I don't have to speak evil to that person. I don't have to shout at that person. And I certainly have to don't, I don't have to say things that I know are going to be painful for them. You know when it seems like there's the most peace in my home is when I sit down and talk to my wife about things that she likes. Now, she loves the home and garden network. I mean loves it. If the TV's on and toys in front of it, which isn't very often, she's watching Chip and Joanna or whoever else. And I'm going to tell you, those shows to a carpenter are a nightmare. I'll watch those shows, and she hates it when I talk during those shows. So I've learned to be quiet. Because I'll say, there is no way they did that in two days. You can't go in a house, rip it apart, bring in sheetrock, tape it, mud it, paint it, put trim up, and have it all done. And she's like, would you please be quiet? And so I said, I don't want to watch these shows. But you know what I've noticed? That when I wake up, it's 7 in the morning, and I walk in the kitchen, and she's got a list of things that she has about our house. And I know, oh, here it comes, that I'll sit and listen. Not because necessarily that's what I want to do. But pretty soon, I realize that she's actually interested in things that I have to say. 
Who would have thought that if we actually listened to one another and talked to one another, that we could have real communication? And friends, what that's done is open up us to talk, open us up to talk about other things that are more meaningful. Because it's not just meaningless conversation and small talk about how our day went or something that happened at work. You know, it's come to the point finally where if my wife has a problem with something I do, that she'll come and talk to me about it. And I can do the same with her. And one of the worst things that happens in marriage is when that relationship doesn't exist and we do something that God has called us not to do. Proverbs chapter 11. I apologize. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I, missed a, I missed a point. Sorry. Proverbs 25. Proverbs chapter 25. Verse 9. Solomon writing says, Debate your case with your neighbor. And do not disclose the secret to another. What do you think he means by that? Debate your case to your neighbor and don't disclose the secret to another. Let's think about that for a moment. Especially as it pertains to our relationships and our marriages. Oh, she gets on my nerves. Oh, you wouldn't believe the things that she does. And we'll do that. We'll vent to a friend or somebody we know about the way that our spouse maybe annoys us or irritates us or the little things that bother us. But we never talk to them about it. Is that fair? More importantly, is that God's will? What did Jesus say in Matthew 18 about if a brother offends us, they trespass against us? Did he say, go find some friends and tell your friends about it? He said, you go to them, you tell them their fault between you and them alone. Can we talk to one another about these problems? It doesn't get resolved when everybody else knows about a problem. And then when the problem gets a little worse and a little worse and we don't talk about it and we ignore it and it blows up, well, we've already got people that have lined up on their teams and now there's more than two people fighting. There's a whole group of people fighting because we went and we team built. And everybody knew about the problems except for the two people that were involved in them. That's why God wants these matters of conflict to stay intimate. He wants them to stay small. But friends, sometimes you need help. But that's where they should start. With two people communicating with each other. Another thing that we need to do is we need to guard our home 
from toxic relationships. Turn with me to Psalms chapter 101. Psalms chapter 101 and verse 1. David writing here says, I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Notice the nature of which David describes he will walk in his house. Verse 3. He says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him will I destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him will I not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land. They that may dwell with me, or that they may dwell with me rather. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell in my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the works of the land that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now I'm not admonishing you to go cut off all the evildoers. I want you to notice that David made some very tough decisions about the company that he would keep and about the quality of people that would live and even work and serve him in his home. We really need to be careful about who our closest friends are. I had relationships when Toy and I first met that she could see right off I was a different person when I was with my best friend. And it wasn't long before I had to make a choice between her and him. And I chose her. And I love that guy. We had a lot of things in common. We liked a lot of the same things. But you know what it was? We had very different ideas about how to live. David said, I'm not going to set a person in my house who's going to live and be deceitful and do these type of things. He says, I want the upright, those with a perfect heart, to be in my midst. 1 Corinthians 15 and 33, what does it say? Evil communications corrupt good manners, or evil friends corrupt good morals. That's not a bumper sticker. That is a fact in life. You are not immune to the influence that you surround yourselves with. And friends, if you're having problems in your marriage, the worst thing you can do is bring in friends and companions that also are having problems within their marriage and are not seeking to fix them. We don't need to have people who wish to live in sin living within our homes. Your home is not a safe haven for people who refuse to repent. It's not a pedestal for them to celebrate their intolerance, or their tolerance, uh, rather. 
And that doesn't mean we can't try to build relationships with people in order to help them with their sin problems. It doesn't mean we shouldn't reach out and have relationships with people who may not know God. But what it does mean is we can't continue to keep these associations and expect to have peace and righteousness within our home. You need good relationships to help you. Because problems will come. And it's important that you have someone to lean on. You know, we often talk about New Testament restoration. And sometimes we'll puff our chest out and say, we have restored New Testament Christianity. Have we? Totally? Completely restored New Testament Christianity? You know what I see that's vastly different today than what we read about in the New Testament? It's Acts chapter 2. Oh no, not the verses that we often read from 1 to 41 and then verse 47. It's everything in between. Where we read about people who didn't just go to church, but were the church. We read about people who were in and out of each other's homes every single day. And they didn't just share a worship service together on Sunday. They shared each other's lives. What if we did that today? You say, well, that's not realistic. We can't share every day together. I understand that. But there's a lot of times we can. And people say, well, I don't have time to do that. But then the next breath they'll say, hey, I watched four seasons the other day on Netflix, back to back to back to back. Took like 20 hours, but with enough coffee and popcorn, we made it through. But I don't have time to go spend with other people. You know who my best friends in this life are? It's not the people who love the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> I love the Dallas Cowboys, but that doesn't make our friendship meaningful just because we like, both like silver and blue and like watching them run up and down the field. I have a lot of people who have a shared interest in music with me and that make, gives a connection with me, but those aren't my best friends. You know who my best friends are, my closest relationships? It's the people who have the same values that I do. You know what's great about those relationships? There's no toxicity in them. They don't affect, they never affect my family in a negative way. Because I know that they're there if I need them to support me and to help me if we have problems. We have to have relationships just like that. People that are having problems, looking at this on the other side, having problems in their marriage, need to know that they have somebody within this body that they can go to. And that they can seek help. And that they'll get help. And I believe you have people here that will do that. Because sometimes we can't fix our own problems. As, much, as good as our intentions are and maybe as much biblical knowledge as we may think we have, sometimes we need somebody else from the outside to come in and step back and help to guide us. Proverbs chapter 11 And there, verse 14. Solomon says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Can two walk together if they're not agreed? No, they can't. 
And sometimes those two people, as much as they love each other and care about each other, and as much as they want to make their marriage work and have peace, sometimes they need a multitude of counselors. They need other people to help them to see the purpose and the vision that they need to have in their marriage from God's Word. Proverbs chapter 15 says something somewhat similar, but a little bit differently. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 22. He says, without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. That's just wisdom. There's nothing wrong with admitting, hey, look, we can't do this by ourselves. I believe that's why God said in Ephesians chapter 4 that He gave some to be pastors. He gave some to be pastors, shepherds, for the good of the people. And you know what a shepherd has to do sometimes? They have to go in and take a sheep who's wounded and bind up their wounds and very tenderly let them know everything is going to be okay. Seek counsel, friends if you have problems within your marriage. But at the end of the day, the solution for every relationship that we have in life, including our marriage, is love. I want to go back through the points and summarize those as we close. Number one, to resolve family conflict, we have to build our house upon the foundation of God's Word. Number two, love has to be the focus of the way that we deal and communicate and interact with one another. Number three, embrace God's role for you in your marriage. Number four, don't get offended about every little thing. Forbear each other and forgive one another. Have a spirit of forgiveness within your marriage. Number five, guard your home from toxic relationships and seek good and godly relationships within your home. And number six, if you can't do it alone, seek help. And I think you have some shepherds here that would love to help you with those problems if that's something that you desire. Friends, families are under attack today. And they're not under attack just by these people that walk up and down the street who have a very distorted idea about what love is. Families are under attack by just about every television program you turn on. Every one of them. You know what I've noticed? That I can watch television shows on TV that don't have nudity and they don't have cussing, but they've always got some type of distorted relationship that's glorified. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but in truth. What do your kids learn from your relationship with each other? What do they see? You know what? You know what's a very scary thought for me? That one day my son is going to grow up and he's going to take a wife. And everything he says to her and every attitude that he displays toward her is going to be an emulation of what he saw dad do. 
The scariest moment in my life was one day talking to my son about a problem that he had done and seeing the face of my stepfather when I stood up. It's not just your problem. Everything you say, the way you say it, and every attitude you display toward one another is being learned and etched right in the back of their minds. And I tell you what, I might want to clean someone's plow if they treated my daughters like I've treated my wife at times. We need to take it very seriously and seek for peace within our marriages. We offer the invitation of Jesus Christ right now. It's not my invitation. It's not the invitation of Anna Street Church of Christ. The great physician can heal and help with any problem that you have. And so that's what this is. It's an opportunity for you to respond and for Jesus to help you. And we'll take whatever need that you have to Him and ask for His blessing. If you need help this afternoon, come and have a seat and we will help you as we stand and sing.